Cashflow Diary Podcast, episode 552. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. The podcast that teaches you insider tips, tactics, and strategies for creating leverage streams of cash flow into your life. Learn from top-performing entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and thought leaders from across the globe as they share their secrets to success. Like what you learn on this and other Cashflow Diary podcast episodes? Go to learninvestingnow.com and sign up to receive powerful tips and information that will help you succeed as an entrepreneur and investor. Now, here's your host, investor, entrepreneur, business owner, educator, speaker, author, and master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Game, Jay Massey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Massey, and I'm glad that you are here today because... We are going to talk about a lot of different things, and one of the things that we are going to hit on today, I believe a number of us are going to, well, we're going to learn something, and we're going to learn something from a few different people as we continually go through this particular series, but we're also going to become bigger, better, better investors, business owners, and just people along the way. So... One of the things that uh, I've thought about, and maybe you have thought about too, is, man, how much do I have to learn? Where can I learn what I need to learn? What do I have to do? What if you are just now getting started in business and you're like, man, I'd like to get to just get started. Five figures. Great. Awesome. Then you want to get to six, then a seven, then the eight and continuing. But there are some things that I know that I have learned on this path that, uh, well, I didn't know that I didn't need to know them, and and a lot of it has to do with formal education. So we're going to talk about some of the things that our guests have learned that formal education could have never taught them on their path to seven figures. And what's interesting is the diverse group of individuals who have many different lessons to share. Now, Today, we're going to be talking with Leif Simon. He's the co-founder and investment director of Live and Invest Overseas, which the title alone of the company should kind of tell you exactly what he does. He lives and invests overseas. Now, overseas, as we continue to talk, means outside of North America because, in general, they are investing overseas. So for those of you who might be in a completely different country, um, adjust accordingly. Now, here's the thing. He's been doing this for 20 years. That's two decades. That's a long time. That means he's forgotten more about his business than we could even learn. But what's going to be cool is we're going to get to learn not only about his path, his journey. We're also going to learn some good lessons about living and investing overseas. So right now, I want you to get ready to welcome, listen, love, and learn from Leif Simon. Leif, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. Thanks for having me. I am glad that you are here uh, because I've got some great questions for you. I'm interested in this, living and investing overseas. I'm actually kind of glad that my wife's not listening right now because she's been trying to get me out of California for quite some time. So uh, I know that there's a lot that you're going to say that she's going to be like, see, 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 I told you. And I'm going to have to do my best to, to just make sure she never hears this particular episode so I can stay in California unless... You convince me otherwise, which I guess is possible. Now, with all that being said, this is 
like your first time here with us. So I have to ask you a very similar question that I tend to ask everybody else. You ready? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I tend to think that today's entrepreneurs are a lot like yesterday's superheroes. You know, Batman, Robin, Hulk, Spider-Man, etc. And because I think entrepreneurs and superheroes have a ton of things in common. For example, as an entrepreneur, occasionally I can envision myself running around town and maybe in a cape and tights at that moment, but I'm selling my product and saving customers one sale at a time. Also, though, like a superhero, an entrepreneur has a beginning. And if you think about Spider-Man, there was a time he was just a kid going to school, doing his thing. And then one day he wakes up, discovers he's got a superhuman ability, and he has to choose whether to use it for good or for evil. So my, my question to you is as follows. Uh, before living and investing overseas, uh, before the Simon letter, before the offshore living letter, before everything that people know you for today... Like, even before you left the U.S., what we want to know is, who is Leif Simon? Mm, that's a that's a tough one. I couldn't tell you who Leif Simon is today, even probably. But, um, <laughs> but in, in the States growing up, I guess, I mean, I knew in high school that I was interested in doing stuff international. Of course, I didn't. At 14, I didn't know what that meant. Um, mm. But I grew up in Phoenix. Unfortunately, uh, the American Graduate School of International Management, Thunderbird, They've changed their name. They're now merged with ASU. Um, was just a few miles away from my high school, and someone told me about it. And so that was kind of my goal um, from high school. Uh, once I got my undergrad degree, to go to grad school and get an international management degree. Again, didn't know what that was. Probably still didn't really know what that was after I graduated. But the the opportunities that came out of uh, that degree were the recruiters that came to that school because it was has been ranked for a long time the the best and still one of the best um, international uh, management schools. So that was kind of my path from the beginning. How it, I, I couldn't tell you how the pieces fell together exactly for eventually being able to move overseas 21 years ago. Um, but that was uh, kind of how I started and organically uh, put everything together and met my wife and uh, made the, my first permanent move. I'd worked overseas before, but my first permanent move um, 21 years ago when we moved to Ireland. Got it. Got it. Okay. So ho- hold on, hold on. There's a lot we covered. I've got to ask a, a, a backup question. You said sure. you were in, there, you, you knew that you wanted to do something internationally at the age of 14. Yeah. Yeah. How on earth? Nobody at 14. I mean, like, what were you doing that you go, ooh, somewhere outside of the U.S.? Like, help me understand. I guess, I guess my, my brain figured that there are better, different, new opportunities outside of the U.S. Um, and, I like you know, living in Phoenix, drove down to, to Nogales a couple times a year to, you know, buy things uh, on the other side of the border, do negotiating and pick up some Spanish, et cetera. And the, the other part that I knew about myself, I get bored easily. Mm. So I knew I didn't want a career in accounting, which I could have had. I worked for an accountant in high school and college. They offered to pay for my, uh, mm. my university. Um, but I, um, my God, if I had to sit in an office all day, <laughs> 30 years, I'd have to kill somebody. Um, so I knew I didn't, I did, I knew some of the things I didn't want. Um, the accounting background has helped me with my, you know, along with my finance degree to, understand numbers and do what I do today, but I, I wasn't going to sit in an office 
Uh, and so I guess that was part of the, the connection there. Interesting. That, I mean, I just think that's you're displaying a, an incredible amount of self-awareness at, at a very young age. Thank you. The, the, um, now, you mentioned degrees. I'm curious to understand, because as we get to one of the next questions I want to ask, this is going to be really important. How many it, it I heard a, it sounded like there was a lot of formal education that you've gone through. Um, I have a finance degree as my bachelor and the international management degree um, for my master's, which eventually they converted to an MBA. Originally, it was called an MIM, Master's of International Management. But when they got accreditation, um, they were able to uh, switch those over to MBAs. But of course, everybody has an MBA these days. And so I don't put much credence in letters after people's names. I'm, uh, I have, I know more about accounting and taxes than most CPAs and partially that's because U S taxes are so complicated that, you know, doing taxes in the U S you have to focus. Um, so right. I, I, I went through the process, but even in my accounting classes, um, I was working for an accountant at the time. I kind of laughed at some of my accounting teachers because the stuff they were and the way they were teaching, it was not how we did it in the real world in the office. Right. Uh, th- there is such a difference between the the classroom and the place where the work is actually supposed to get done. And and it's interesting because I'm one of my my oldest is currently in college. And I, I've always thought it was interesting that you go to college for the time you go. And then like day one on the job, the first thing they do is to train you how to do the job. And right. I'm like, hmm. That that's just interesting to me. I feel like, why did isn't that what I was supposed to be learning? So <laughs> now, then the the question then becomes because it, this is again as, as we go through this series, I love hearing the answer. Um, what we really would love to know is like, what are the top things that you know formal education could have never taught you, but lessons that you know are absolutely critical and have been critical on your path to seven figures and beyond. Well, I guess for, for me, we have to jump ahead to when I moved overseas and started investing in real estate uh, internationally. Okay. And the, uh, the, the, the one thing, and this is what I try and tell our readers and conference attendees about, when you're looking for real estate and with the internet these days, it's easier to find you know, mm-hmm. real estate offerings online. But if you're looking at a real estate listing in English for a property in, let's make up a country, Peru, you're probably looking at the most expensive property of that type, that size in that neighborhood, um, because it's in English and it's on the internet. So that's the, the one lesson of any market that I go into for real estate is you're, you need to, you need to drill down to get to the, the local pricing, um, and away from the gringo pricing. <laughs> I, a, a friend of mine, a uh, business partner of mine moved to Costa Rica and, it tells the story, you know, when he first moved to Costa Rica, he knew about gringo pricing and he spent a year looking at land and drilling and digging and uh, trying to figure out the market and finally bought a piece of property. He thought he'd reached the local level. Um, the next year, he continued to look for more property. He found uh, a better property for a cheaper price. The next year, he found yet another property at a cheaper price. And probably by that third year is when he actually um, reached the the, the local pricing. So, um, the, just that you, you, the, the easier something is in, in looking for, for real estate, the, the higher price, just like anything else, you know, if you're buying a, 
a bottle of water from the guy in the corner, you're going to pay a premium over what you buy, pay in the, you know, in the cheap grocery store uh, that you normally go to. So. <laughs> so that 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 first offer probably isn't their best offer. Is that what you is that what you're saying? Exactly. I'm I'm not uh, opposed to uh, making a, an offensive offer, uh, although sometimes the the real estate agents are because they uh, they don't want to be tagged as such. But but right. It's like negotiating for anything, really. I guess we just got back from China, and um, had to, you know, teach the other people that were on the on the trip with us. You know, you got to start out at, in this case, you know, as little as twenty, thirty percent of what they're uh, offering you, and maybe you end up at fifty percent of what they're offering you if you if you only go eighty percent and end up at ninety percent. They're they're making twice as much money as they would with uh, with the local. No doubt. Unless, this is for trinkets, of course, but the, the concept does carry over to uh, to real estate, especially in um, many Latin American markets. And the farther you are away from a more standardized market, like if you're in Panama City, where I live, you know, you can you, you know what prices are and what things sell for in, in different neighborhoods and different buildings. But if you're looking for, you know, land in the hills, you, you've really got to uh, dig down to see what the what the locals are selling to each other. Uh, at and try and get that pricing. Got it. Got it. Now, the interesting thing, I, I guess, here is uh, have you found this to be just a, a cultural thing? Because I know many of the Americans that are listening today are, are probably like, I, I do this to my wife all the time. She hates, I will go to anywhere, everywhere, and always negotiate, uh, even in the mall out here, because it's just fun. I just like doing right. it. Right. Right. But it offends her, and I would imagine that most Americans, for sure, just don't do this, and yet it's almost expected everywhere else. Well, it, it, exactly. Uh, if there's a price tag on something, Americans are happy to just pay that price if they think the price, if you know, if it's worth, you know, while or whatever. Um, but right, in in many cultures, the, the negotiation is expected, and lots of real estate markets. Including real estate markets in the U.S., you know there should be some negotiation, and it really depends on what the property is priced at. If a property is priced to move, mm -hmm. then maybe there's as much as five, ten, if you're lucky, fifteen percent uh, availability for for negotiating. If the if it's priced at a ridiculous price, then maybe there's more space for negotiating, or maybe the the people don't care, and they've just priced it at that. And if they find a buyer who comes along to pay that ridiculous price, they'll sell. If not, they'll just sit on it. Which is a big thing in in markets where there's just wealthy people who don't have aren't carrying any debt on the property, so you know they don't need to sell. They'll sell it at a premium if they can find a buyer, but otherwise, they just hold on to things. So, have there been any other lessons in your life on on the way to seven figures that you know you you couldn't have learned that because last time I checked, there is no negotiating class in high school, college, anywhere. I was like, you know, hey, they they don't really teach it in in the in that sense. So I'm curious to know what other lessons that you've learned uh, on the path that formal education could not have taught you. Well, the other thing, again, this is a, a, this is more of a, a cultural thing. Outside of the U.S., you um, should, you need to, we recommend you use um, a, a real estate attorney to help you with the process, with the paperwork, with the contracts. And sometimes they know what the market is and can help you with, with, with pricing. Mm. But really, you want to make sure that the, that you're using an attorney to 
verify that you're buying what you what you think you're buying. You know, there are <laughs> in the U.S. There's 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 lots of safety nets, right? Right. You've got the title company, you've got the bank, because you're going to get a mortgage, and so everybody wants to be protected. Outside of the U.S., it's um, um, maybe you know, I guess free for all is probably too strong in in most markets, but you're you're on your own, and even in Ireland, which you would you know English speaking civilized country, um, it's it's caveat emptor as our first attorney there uh, told us, and we you know for the first house we bought there, um, we wanted to have a, a home inspection. Well, that wasn't really a thing in Ireland, but they recommended a civil engineer who who did inspections and because uh, it wasn't an inspection wasn't mandatory um, by the bank. So, but we wanted one. The guy uh, came. He went around the property. When he sent his report, it talked about the place would look better with different um, drapes, changed the wallpaper. It was more of a fashion report than, oh, by the way, you have dry rot in your baseboard, which we did, but he wow. didn't put that in the report. And so, um, you know, the, use an attorney, use experts. But really, you're on you're on your own. So you want to use an attorney that is used to real estate transactions and doing real estate transactions with foreigners. And we I've found great ones over the years in different countries. Um, but as when you're buying something, you know, again, there's there's no there are no safety nets. There's no home inspection required if, if you're getting a mortgage, which is possible in some countries. Um, the banks aren't going to require the same things that are required in the U.S. And so you need to you need to find those on your own. And where there's a lot of expats, you can find people who will offer and have the credentials to offer uh, things like home inspections. Um, but again, for us in Ireland, it was it was a guy who had a civil engineering degree, but was commenting <laughs> on the decor, which is one reason I don't give credence to, to you know, just because somebody has letters after their name. It doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. I, I think that's the the big lesson right there. Letters after your name don't necessarily mean you know what you're talking about. But here's a question, though. When thrown into a, in this case, foreign environment, uh, often a a very human response is is to just be afraid. In fact, someone I know for a fact, someone listening to us right now got afraid and said to themselves, they immediately said, oh, no, then I'm just not going to go overseas. Based upon what little you said, because they got afraid. (laughs) Right. I'm curious to know how has your relationship with fear changed on your path to seven figures and beyond? Hello there, entrepreneur. This is Jay Massey. I know that if you've ever gone over to the site, cashflowdiary.com, you may have asked yourself, where on earth do you get a domain name from? Especially as you are beginning to build your bigger, better, better business, you need a web presence. You need the email address. You need a way for people to contact you electronically so that you can stop doing the at gmail.com game. Well, the good folks over at GoDaddy have definitely supplied us with every domain that we have ever used. So what I want you to do is I want you to go over to trygodaddy.com forward slash cashflow diary. Again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash cashflow diary because it's a quick way for you to get set up to capture your domain name the exact way that you want it. They got easy search functions. And most importantly for you is that you'll be up and running today. As I said, once you get started, stay started. Don't let small little obstacles of how to get your own domain name going stop you. So again, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash cash flow diary and let's get back to the rest of the story. 
Um, I guess I, I would say I, I've always been a little more uh, aggressive and not worried too much about uh, things. On our second overseas purchase, the first was our house in Ireland. The second was an investment in Spain, and I was doing a research trip doing the entire southern coast of Spain mm-hmm. and ended up in a town called Estepona, which is in the um, – uh, it's near Marbella. And uh, the, a developer had just launched this project. It was selling quickly, of course. That's what they were saying, but it was. I mean, I saw the, the sales reports, and the terms were great. The location was on the beach. Everything was perfect. And so I called up my wife and said, all right, I want to I want to do this deal. And she was like, what are you are you out of your mind? But you know, I mean, she's moved, she moved to Ireland. She, she was into the international thing and all that. But she's like, you're you're crazy. I'm like, no, we'll leave, the deposit's refundable. We'll make the deposit. I'll come home, call an attorney, get the due diligence done. And eventually said, OK, if you want to do it, just do it. And basically don't don't say any more about it to her <laughs> until <laughs> it, it goes good or it goes bad. Right. Right. And. As it turns out, if I could repeat that deal every year or every two and a half years, which was the, the, the turnover, it was a pre-construction deal. The developer sold the property uh, for me before construction was completed, and I made you know an annualized return in the 38% range or whatever um, on, on the money that I'd put down over the two years as the, as the down payment. And so I didn't... For, for me, I guess the fear part, the, the risk mitigation was the, the down payment wasn't much, and then I knew I could make the progress payments. And then eventually, if the property didn't sell, Spain was offering mortgages at that time to foreigners, so I could get a mortgage and then rent the place out. And so I, 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 I think through worst-case scenarios, I guess, and if I can live with the worst-case scenario, then I'm, I'm happy to move forward. Um, many people, I guess, don't. You know, they'd be less comfortable with that worst case scenario or they don't think things through that uh, far and then decide to do to do nothing. Well, I think there's an aversion to even want to consider that the worst case scenario is even possible. So it catches one unprepared or has the ability to catch one unprepared as opposed to at least. I mean, even if you've had a bad plan, it's better than no plan. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there was something in what you just said that I also want to make sure everyone heard, because uh, you said Spain was offering mortgages to foreigners at that time, which implies that there are times where in international real estate that mortgages aren't offered to foreigners. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so pre-2008, most places in Europe... The big, the big countries of so Spain, France, Portugal, um, Ireland, the UK, you could get uh, you get mortgages as a, as, as a non-resident foreigner, someone who's not living there and or not earning your money in, in the country. Um, you'd have to put more down than you would um, if you were living in the country. You're looking at maybe a 60 to 70 percent loan to value. Um, after 2008, because so many people, especially Brits in Spain, were taking out mortgages um, and the market just collapsed and people walked away from the properties. The Spanish banks were carrying way too many uh, properties on their books, and they just stopped giving mortgages to uh, to foreigners because they their fear was the reality that they just lived through. But of course, they needed the foreigners to buy these properties uh, to get them off their books. So eventually, they started loosening up again. And in, so, in Spain, Portugal today, um, you can get uh, mortgages as a as a non-resident foreigner 
France, there's one bank that I've heard of that is giving loans, but France is still much more conservative since 2008 than, than the others. And in Latin America, um, you know, you're, if you can get a mortgage, you probably don't want it because interest rates are going to be really high. <laughs> uh, it, you know, Nicaragua, you can get a local mortgage um, if you're a resident, foreign, uh, a foreign resident, but you're looking at you know, double-digit uh, interest rates, the same in Belize for the most part. Panama would be the only place where you could – some banks are giving non-residents mortgages and foreign residents uh, mortgages, and the interest rate is in the 6 to 7% range. Now – I'm just curious because you're bringing it up. Is there ever a time where, say, a bank in Panama will lend on something in Latin America or something or, or like um, further south somewhere over there? No, the banks generally aren't going to do that because they don't have the capacity to foreclose. Right? I see. So they don't they don't they don't have the infrastructure. There's one bank. There's a there's a small um, private bank in Belize that we know of that will give loans in Central America. Um. And the way they structure it, you have to hold the property in a Belizean entity, and they hold the shares of the Belizean entity. So that's their uh, safety mechanism. If you stop paying, then they they already have the shares uh, in their office. Yeah, I see. Got it. So that that's how they cover themselves is what you're saying. Right, right. That makes sense. Uh, seems like more people would want to try something like that in some way, shape, or form. But okay. It, yeah, it's it, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to match people up with those kinds of things. We have uh, a group we work with in Colombia that matches investors up to uh, foreign, well, actually to local buyers as well if they want, but um, to foreign buyers to offer private mortgages. You know, those terms are not going to be a thirty-year uh, amortization in a and a ninety-five percent LTV. You're looking at you know fifty to sixty percent LTV and maybe a three to seven-year maximum uh, payment period. Maybe the amortization is on 30 years, but you're going to have a balloon at the end of seven years. So for investors looking at a you know, five-year horizon, um, those kinds of things can uh, can make sense. Again, the interest rates even on that type of private loan in Colombia is still double-digit, you know, 10, 11, 12%. So uh, has there been anything, uh, or, or let me rephrase, what has there been? What did you gain from your formal education that you would consider useful on the path to seven figures? For for me personally, what I've been doing the last 15, 20 years in helping people find properties and, and compare opportunities is how to calculate an IRR, which my wife drives my wife crazy because <laughs> um, I, I, you know, at the conferences, I'm now forced to ask how many people in the room know what an IRR is and, you know, 10% of the room will raise their hand. So then I have to explain it. And explain why it's important because if you're if you're a real estate investor and you're just you you buy a property for as a rental and you start renting it out well your annual yield is your IRR excluding your appreciation um, and so that's easy but how do you compare other types of investments like forestry so we we talk mm-hmm. about timber projects in Panama and Colombia and Nicaragua and if you know teak you if you plant new teak today you harvest it in 25 years Right, and so you have twenty-four years of zero cash flow. How do you compare turning fifty thousand dollars into a million dollars over twenty-five years into turning, you know, fifty thousand dollars into a cash flow that starts after five years for the uh, fruit tree uh, agriculture that we talk about, and then that cash flow continues for thirty years? How do you compare those two? You can't just total up the cash flows. 
You can't just divide by the number of years. You've got to go through the IRR calculation and see what that comes up with to have at least a fair basis for comparing them. And then you've got to look at, you know, you know why are you making the investment? Do you need the cash flow? A lot of people do the long-term timber for, you know, pay for the grandkids' college or uh, legacy planning and things like that. So there are other factors, but you've got to start with the, the financial basis. Yes. Uh, the what's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned the the teak and timber because I was I was actually thinking about that yesterday because uh, that's on our that's part of the plan. And I was just and I just don't know. You know, is it? Do you always have to? Can't you buy them midterm? Couldn't I buy one that's maybe fifteen or twenty years in already? You you can, and we and we actually work with a group that um, has been doing that, and then they sold out the plantation that they planted themselves, and they're buying a, another big plantation and carving it up. Um, and so yes, you, yes, you can, and then you've got then you've got a calculation to do there to see what the value is of the yeah net present value now is what we're, we're, we're is what we would be doing at that point, right? Exactly, and and so but yes, then there's still you know projection of what they would sell for in ten years at that point if they're fifteen year old trees. Um, and so, yes, you can find those kinds of opportunities. In fact, one of my friends, long-term friends now in Panama, who has a large teak plantation, he has some investors from 10, 15 years ago who, who bought the investment to get residency in Panama. They now have their, you know, their permanent residency and their citizenship, and they no longer need the, to maintain the investment, so they're looking to sell. So you can find those uh, uh, opportunities on a secondary market. Got it. So, all right. So now you, you're bringing up a number of different types of ways to still have real estate plays, which I love, which suggests to me, because again, I'm, uh, people have asked me all the time, like, what type of investing you do you do? And I'm like, I'm a cash flow person. What that means is that I am asset agnostic. I don't really care what the underlying asset is as much as I care about A, do I understand it? And B, does it eventually in some way produce cash flow and i'm getting the right. sense that you're the same uh yeah definitely at this point as i'm getting older when i was younger i was it was you know happy with the with the capital appreciation like that pre-construction deal in spain um but right now i'm looking at uh, since 2008 when the whole mm -hmm. global real estate world turned upside down the and everybody was a real estate investor in 2008 <laughs> <laughs> They tell a story about uh, looking at property in Montenegro, and the real estate agent um, who was showing us around uh, said, "Oh, we just we just had an Irish girl in last week looking at property. She's a hairdresser, and we walked wow. into this one this one apartment, and she said, "It's I love it. It's great. How much is it?" And she she of course didn't know anything about the property other than she'd walked into it. She didn't know how many bedrooms, and if, that's not how you buy real estate. <laughs> it's not. But that indicated to me at that time, and this was probably 2000, and this must have been 2006, um, that the, the, the world, especially the Irish buyers, because they couldn't afford to buy in Ireland because of the bubble there, were now pushing themselves into other markets and, uh, and, and just, just throwing money at anything, which made it harder for uh, you know, real investors long-term investors like myself to find good deals. Um, and so then in 2008, 2009, we, we moved to Panama in 2008 and started living invest overseas. Uh, um, that's when I started looking at agriculture opportunities and have found 
a few over the years. The problem with agriculture is that you know you can go if you have a million dollars, you can go buy land in Uruguay and hire a, a farm manager. But most people don't have a million dollars to do that, and so trying to find things that are packaged, if you will, uh, for individual investors hasn't been easy. We found a few. We're working with a group in Panama, um, a group in Thailand, and one in, in Europe, and and then right that the cash flow from that is long term. You know, fruit trees in Panama once they start producing after year four or five will produce for you know, 50, 60 years. We stop the projections at 30 years because after that the the IRR curve flattens anyway, um, and you'll be dead. So it's for the kids. <laughs> That's definitely one way of looking at it, and I like it because this is something uh, you're, you're beginning to talk about the alternative types of things that uh, I enjoy uh, personally. Now, I'm also curious to know: live and invest overseas. Why? Why? Why start it? Why do it? What's it about? What? What on earth inspired? I mean, you. It sounded like to me you were already doing things that you know that were satisfying to you, but then you decide to offer in a you know more to the world. Well, it's a bit of a complicated story, but um, I my wife was working for a publishing company mm-hmm. that talked about that talked about these ideas when when we met. I she ran a tour, we met on the tour, we got married. Um, that company wanted to open an office in Ireland. We moved to Ireland, and I was going to do a real estate project there. But it turns out she needed help with the admin side of things. She's a writer, so she's great on the uh, idea side, the writing side. Uh, you know, my background, finance, administration, HR. So I helped her with each of those departments mm-hmm. um, in the business setup and then created the real estate investment publishing and opportunity side of things for that for that group um, and then our daughter wanted to go to finish high school in uh, Paris so we moved to Paris so we were in Ireland for seven years we were in Paris for uh, four years and then I left the company we were working for and she left a year later and she thought she was retiring she like me gets bored easily three months later she said hey I want to start my own publishing company where should we do it? So we looked around to where we should do that, what made the most sense. And Panama, the two top choices were Uruguay and Panama. Panama won for several reasons, including the uh, the fact that we we could it would be, we knew it would be easier to find English-speaking uh, employees in Panama than it would be in Uruguay. And since we we're writing to an English-speaking uh, readership, that's what, that's what we needed. And so that's how Living Invest Overseas got created. It was an extension of what we had been doing previously for this publishing company and um, just doing it a little bit better, we think, and uh, a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like that. So when it comes down to it, what what I am hearing is there are a lot of things that I believe that every investor, regardless of you know country of origin, that we just we take for granted or assume based upon, Hey, this is how, this is how it's done, you know? And, and, and that's obviously just not the case. And right. there seems to be a, a, <laughs> a massive amount of information uh, necessary in order to make what could feel like a simple decision in your own home country, but is actually completely different because you're, you're, you're learning over from the beginning. So my question, I guess is, and and I'm because I'm really curious. 
if someone listening right now <laughs> wanted to try to do it the right way and let's be let's let's say that they were crazy enough and wanted to do it on their own in your estimation how long do you think it would take them to just make sure that they could figure out and do it the right way well that's that's i'll, I'll tell you what it takes for me when i enter a new country okay um, so, and and I, uh, it's rarer and rarer that i end up doing that because i've already you know researched and, and established connections in, in a lot of countries. But for example, Colombia, which I think was really the last new country where I went in and w specifically was looking for an investment for myself and, for, and, and information for our readers. So it, and, and but this was, this is with experience of knowing the questions to ask and the type of people to find. Mm -hmm. so the first thing I did going into a country is look for, um, for a, a real estate attorney. And so an English-speaking real estate attorney that has experience with foreigners, if there is such a thing in some countries, you know, I found that it's very hard uh, to find because, you know, a country um, like Colombia, even the attorney we found, he had some experience, but at that point, Colombia hadn't attracted a lot of foreigners. And so to find an attorney, try and find an English-speaking real estate agent, if possible, especially in countries where I don't speak the language, I speak Spanish well enough that I found an English-speaking and a Spanish-speaking real estate agent in in Colombia, um, try and find a rental manager. That if you're buying to, uh, you know, buying to rent, if you're buying to live. That's a whole different uh, topic. And again, if there is one, uh, there's not rental managers available in, in in many markets, especially if they're not uh, already a, a tourist market where you would find short-term uh, rentals. And so, I think my wife and I we made three trips. Um, of about a week each over the course of four, I guess, four to six months. And that was our, that created our initial baseline uh, for the country. And then on the crazy side, but I've done this, we've done this many times. You know, so when we were ready to buy, we went, we made appointments with uh, the two real estate agents, saw various properties over the course of a couple of days, picked one, made an offer, and bought it. I wouldn't recommend that uh, for most people. I think most people would freak out at that. But if you if you think you understand the market, and the main thing is, if you when you're buying in a market like this, that you're buying if you're if you're buying a rental, that you're buying a rental property that will rent to the market that you want to rent to. That's the those are the real questions. That's why you want to find a property manager early on and ask them. Um, what properties do they need? What properties do they want? Will they take on? Uh, we've had uh, readers who have gone to Medellin and bought a property that they fell in love with or properties the real estate agent said should rent well and were disappointed in the rental yields because it was out of the zone for short-term rentals. So they had to rent long-term and long-term rentals provide you know lower returns. So I'm kind of babbling at this point. So did I get to, <laughs> get to no, the No, you, you proved my point because one of the things that, um, you know, I've learned in helping entrepreneurs become bigger, better, badder entrepreneurs, there are many lessons that you can learn on your own, uh, but sometimes you, it, it's, it's not worth the expense of time, effort, energy, and having a guide always helps. And, that, and I was just curious because I, I knew that, well, I know personally and I, I can imagine the amount of experience that you've gathered 
you, you shortcut that process for a number of people. And if they have an interest in investing somewhere that is not their home country, um, they, they should track you guys down, which is a great opportunity for me to ask if for those that have listened this far and want to, to find out more about what you guys are doing, what's going to be the best way for them to find you? So our, our main website is liveandinvestoverseas.com. And there you can sign up for our free e-letter, get started, see some of our information. We have several free letters, including a real estate oriented one and an offshore topic oriented one. Um, and then we also we also do events, but the free e-letter is the easiest way to just start seeing uh, what we talk about and if it makes sense for you. Excellent. Now, as we wind down, I've got a, <laughs> a final question for you because I'm curious to hear your answer. I mean, especially given that not only you, but it sounds like your daughter just said, hey, I want to go to school in Paris and you guys like up and moved. So this is this is going I think your answer is going to be really interesting uh, because of these things. So, um, you know, there, there's a number of people listening who are at, you know, various stages. And in the course of them listening to you and I today, they may have uh, gotten to the place to where they're like, you know what? They're drawing that line in the sand. They're like, that's it. I'm doing it. Whatever it is for them. Sometimes it's starting a business. Sometimes it's, uh, in your case, moving out of the country. There's probably at least a few people who have had that thought process. And now they're like, okay, that's it. Line in the sand. Now, you know, like I know, that when we come to those moments, I call them the, the, the precipice of decision. Because w- when we're there, we're looking over the cliff and we have this companion. That companion is a voice. It's a voice that often reminds us of how it didn't work last time. And you're going to do what? And you're going to move where? And real estate? <laughs> Seriously? And for some people, they're related to that voice. So my question to you is as follows. Let's pretend that this time it's going to be different, Leaf. This time they're going to do exactly what you say. And they're going to do so in the next 24 to 48 hours. What would you suggest that they do? Oh, wow. Um, well, if we're talking about in, in, in investing in real estate overseas, which sure. is the main thing I, I, I focus on, as opposed to just moving overseas, that's a whole another topic we can talk about some other time. In fact, my <laughs> wife would be good for that topic. But in, in, investing um, in real estate, the, the, the main thing I would recommend if you're interested in diversifying your real estate portfolio beyond your home country is pick a country where you at least think, if you don't already know, that you'd like to spend time. Mm. I've, I've found great real estate opportunities in crazy places. Um, you know, South Africa, somebody wrote me about an agriculture project in some other African country. I couldn't, couldn't tell you the name now. And yeah, the opportunity looked great, but I'm never going to visit. I'm never going to check on it. I'm <laughs> never going to go. Even if it's not a scam, it's a real thing, it, it, and it's just not worth it. But if you, you know, say you like Mexico, well, then start looking in, at, at the places that you like to spend time in Mexico and see if those real estate markets make sense for investment right now. If you like the, uh, the idea of Colombia or you like the idea of Belize uh, or Portugal or whatever, um, then that, that's where I would start with your, with your search rather than looking on the Internet and chasing the best you know, marketing materials or the best yields that are, are being uh, thrown out there. Uh, look, look in the places that you're interested in spending time. I love it 100%. And I can definitely throw my hat in the ring for Belize because it's just beautiful. Um, now, I, I definitely appreciate you guys doing what you do. And I like how you've done it because it's, it's one thing to 
create a company that talks about living and investing overseas. It's another to literally walk that walk and talk that talk. And you did so. You didn't do it because you wanted to create the company. You just did it because you were already doing that. And I that that speaks volumes about who you guys are and the integrity that is possible uh, when finding the right guide. So I, I definitely want to be one of the first to say thanks for taking the time to share your knowledge, your wisdom, as well as your insight here with us today at the Cashflow Diary. No problem, Jay. I appreciate uh, you having me on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for you to move at the speed of instruction. What does that mean? That means get over to liveandinvestoverseas.com. Why? Because, well, you know that there's a lot that you don't know. And that's probably one of the biggest things that you have learned in this particular episode. I mean, you've heard it said, what you don't know can't hurt you. I would say quite the opposite, because what you don't know can, has, and always will hurt you, especially if you try to do this investing outside of your home country on your own. And hey, worst case scenario, now you know what IRR means. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun talking to you today. I look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time. (laughs) 